Hi, I'm County Executive Barry Glassman. And whether you're on the go, in the car, or at your desk, the Conduit Street Podcast delivers your accurate local news. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here, Mako's Policy Associate, joined as always by my co-host, Mako's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Hey, Kevin. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about what is going on with the Chesapeake Bay. You have seen this in the news. If you walk around downtown Annapolis and you walk by Ego Alley, you'll notice a lot of debris and whatnot. Looks awful. We'll get into exactly what is going on there, what is causing it. We're also going to talk about SALT lawsuits. We'll get into that. That is the state and local tax deduction. Congress made some big changes. Now a handful of states are suing. And then we will get into the Kerwin Commission, a common theme here lately on the podcast. They are very busy. We'll talk specifically about teacher compensation, and we'll give you an update on pre-K. So, Michael, what is going on with the Bay? There's been a ton of coverage in the news lately. You're walking around downtown. You see what's going on. There's tons of you know, what look like logs down at Ego Alley and all kinds of just debris. What's going on? Flotsam, the whole thing. Obviously, Maryland has, uh, you know, our whole region has been, we've been raining cats and dogs for for most of the last 20 days or so. We've had relatively heavy rains and there's only so much the the water basin can handle. So, you know, the Chesapeake Bay watershed is a big region, uh, stretches far north of here, well up into Pennsylvania and even New York State. Uh, so there's lots and lots of tributaries that are overrun with with runoff and heading down toward and into the Chesapeake Bay. And the system just sort of got overwhelmed, basically. And so the what everyone is talking about here is the Conowingo Dam. So maybe we yeah. should start there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the Conowingo Dam shows up in these headlines for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is it's just a gigantic physical structure. Um, you know, if you're, it's a little bit out of the way. If you're a Maryland highway driver, you might not be over on on U.S. Route One where where the Conowingo is, but the Susquehanna River is the big waterway that that empties into the the northern tip of the Chesapeake Bay. It flows out of Pennsylvania and so forth. Um, the Susquehanna River, if you if you're on Route 95 mm-hmm. and you ride over that big bridge over the Susquehanna River, it's a big memorable moment on that you know drive northward towards Philadelphia or New York or whatnot. Um, if you were to you know look left and look about five miles up river from that point, the Conowingo Dam crosses the same Susquehanna River, and it's not only a dam for water management purposes, but it's a hydroelectric generation facility, and that that's part of what makes this complicated. Right. <laughs> so this dam, it stretches across the river, the Susquehanna River, between Harford and Cecil counties. It was opened in 1928. It also holds back the sediment that washes into the river and would otherwise flow into the Chesapeake Bay. That is the problem. Yeah. So environmentally, the the status and the functions of of the dam itself is pretty important to what makes it down the Susquehanna and makes it into the body of the Chesapeake Bay. And sediment is bad for a number of reasons. It can cloud up the water, smothers underwater grasses, oysters, and 
other bottom-dwelling life when it settles. They contribute to algae blooms that suck oxygen out of the water. Obviously, that is bad for our crab population. It's bad for anybody that wants to go swimming in the bay. We've seen beaches shut down. We've seen events being canceled. And most of this is because the Conowingo Dam can no longer hold that sediment from coming through, right? It is overwhelmed. It's full, essentially. It can't stop any more of the sediment from coming through. And once they open those floodgates, all the sediment comes into the bay, and that's why you're seeing all this debris everywhere right. you look on the news. Right. So, so that's a big regional issue. I mean, there's, there, there's nothing that, that defines where we are and where we live in Maryland like the Chesapeake Bay. And, I mean, that's you know, it's like the, the underlying theme for our summer conference is, is the water that defines us economically and culturally – and as a destination and as an economy and so forth, I mean, the Chesapeake Bay and our watershed is really where it's at. So this is a big deal. And, and, and you, know, you mentioned the, the Conowingo itself is, has sort of just reached capacity. There's, there's a whole bunch of buildup behind that dam that's been gathering for decades and decades, almost 100 years old. Right. So, so as a practical matter, we're in a real pinch and what makes this you know, more than just an idle, oh, rubbing hands together, what do we do about it? Um, you have a quirky circumstance where the, the dam itself as an energy generation facility is up for a pending renewal with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So the, there's a FERC permit they need to get approved so they can continue to operate the dam as an energy generator. Right. And as part of that process, Maryland has to issue a certification that the operation of the dam will not uh, harm water quality. And so that's where this gets interesting, right? Because Maryland earlier this year basically said, look, if you want to get our sign off here, you're going to have to pay a bunch of money around $170 million a year to help clean up the bay. Because if you want to operate this dam, if you want to create this energy and make money, we want you to kick in the cash. Exelon basically said, no way. That number is way too high. We might be willing to contribute something. But you need maybe to look to your northern neighbors like Pennsylvania and New York because we know that a lot of this sediment is flowing down from those northern states. Yes, yeah, so there's, there's multiple players here. And this issue is, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned $170 million a year is, is, you know, what's the opposite of small potatoes? Right. Big potatoes? I don't know. That's, that's, that's meaningful money. So right? with the 50 year operating yeah. license, that would be around $7 billion. Right. So, so that's a, that's, you know, this is a big ask and it's a big task and whatever you might need to do in the area. I mean, there have been talk, there, there's been talk about going into the area behind the dam itself and dredging right. and all this, the sediment and silt and whatnot that has been piling up there to go in and take it out. That's, that's not an easy feat. This isn't, I mean, no dredging project is simple, but right. the idea of we getting all that equipment to that spot um, on the other side of the dam, um, that would be a big, expensive, complicated undertaking. And I know back in December, we had sort of a trial run, right, where right. they tried to do some dredging, and I think that the conclusion was this is not going to work. I, I mean, there, there certainly is not an obvious path forward there. So, so I mean, I think you know we're we're 
potentially exhausting our expertise on, on where this goes. But but this is a centerpiece kind of policy issue for the state of Maryland, for our region. So, you know, we in Maryland, we've got, we're you know, we're the geography right around this dam and around most of the Chesapeake Bay. So we're directly affected by all this. And we're having these, these fits and starts of what to do about the dam and what to do about the sediment plumes and that sort of stuff. There's no doubt in the, in the space of the next few weeks, we'll see some of these overhead photographs that show the plumes that came out of the Susquehanna River, you know, after this last big washout, and it will be staggering. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's sad because earlier this year, you know, we were seeing the pictures of the bay and how clear everything was and the, the grasses were growing yeah. again. And now with all of this rain, things have turned. Now, politically, Michael, we saw at the <laughs> Board of Public Works meeting, Governor Larry Hogan and Comptroller Peter Franchot they didn't hold back, essentially right. saying, look, this is Pennsylvania and New York not coming to the table. They're contributing to this mess, and they need to step up and pay for it. Politically, this is a tricky issue, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's relatively safe politics if you're elected in Maryland to criticize the the voters and taxpayers and citizens of another state for not pulling their, their fair share. Well, I should say tricky right. in terms of <laughs> yeah. like getting them to actually but chip I, yeah. in. Right? How, how, do we, how, do we bring, how do we bring Pennsylvania in particular – to the table as an aggressive actor on this. They just, I mean, you know, let, let, let's face it. It's understandable who, who gets reelected governor or, you know, congressman in Pen, in Pennsylvania by virtue of cleaning up the Chesapeake Bay, which is basically in Maryland and Virginia, right? No one. <laughs> right. So, so as, as a, as a practical matter, it's tough. I mean, they're, we're part of a multi-state regional group and we, you know, we've signed these compacts and agreements and so forth, but it, it's not like the Maryland governor can just order the people in York, Pennsylvania to, you know, <laughs> start doing better with their stormwater and with their pollutants and their, you know, they, you can't do that. Right. So really the federal government would have to step in. We yet to see whether or not that could actually happen. But for now, the Conowingo Dam is certainly at capacity in terms of its ability yeah. to hold sediment. And this is a, an issue that everyone's working on, including Exelon, policymakers, and environmentalists. Right. Everyone's trying to figure out the best solution here. Yeah, so everybody's at the table. It's a centerpiece issue for us. Um, this might be the kind of thing that shows up as a, as a you know electoral issue in the campaign between now and November. But certainly, it's going to still be on the table for the General Assembly next year and beyond. And Michael, the bay being in the condition that it is, not only is it potentially an environmental disaster, it also has economic impacts on state and local governments. Definitely. For instance, the Governor's Cup yacht race was canceled. There was a Bassmasters tournament in Hartford County that was canceled. There's a lot of work that goes into these things. There's a lot of money on the table. A lot of people travel from outside of the state or the county, and they're going to stay in your hotels and eat in your restaurants. Mm -hmm. So there's a big economic impact here, too. Right. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, that's why we think of the Chesapeake Bay as, as the crown jewel of, of, of what Maryland brings to the table in many, in many respects. So sure. I mean, events like these that we just have to skip for a year. I mean, there are people who had made plans. I'm, I'm going to Maryland. I'm spending my time there. I'm spending my money there and we'll, we'll miss out on that. We miss, you know, we miss some momentum with, with some of those positive events. I mean, it happens, right? I mean, weather, you know, weather is, is, is effectively out of our control in the, in the short term. So, okay, we'll, um, yeah, we'll, we'll pick up and soldier on, but this is, this is not just, you know, some academics pacing the floor worried about phosphorus. Uh, this is more, you know, nuts and bolts. These are people making a living with oysters and crabs. These are, this is our economy.
economy and jobs you know, depend on these kind of activities and, and also our way of life. So it's, there's, there's a broader effect than just, oh, you know, it's kind of inconvenient for the boaters. So we'll have to assume that this will be cleaned up quickly. We hope that it will, and we hope that it doesn't have too much of an impact on the watermen and the environment in the bay. But we'll have to stay tuned. We'll keep you updated here on the pod. All right, Michael, let's get into states suing the IRS and the Treasury to strike down the new salt cap under new tax law. This is one of your favorite subject areas. So I'm going to kick it over to you. We've talked about salt before, but in case our listeners missed that episode, let's talk about exactly what this is and why it's especially important to Maryland and a handful of other states. Yeah, the, I mean, the downside of having a clever acronym is that you can lose people with your acronym and they'll think you're actually talking about table salt, right. the sodium chloride. Is this, is this like a blood pressure issue or something? No. Well, it may be a blood pressure issue for Maryland taxpayers mm-hmm. because what's – see what I did there? This, um, so, so, but, uh, I mean, Maryland taxpayers are among a handful of states who might feel particularly aggrieved because part of the federal income tax reforms placed a limit on how much you can claim as as a deduction on your federal taxes for state and local taxes, state and local taxes being the acronym SALT. Mm-hmm. Um, you've always been able to say, hey, um, I pay income taxes or I pay property taxes or in some states I pay sales taxes and I, I can document document that. And because I paid those taxes, that wasn't income that was ever available to me. You know, it's by law, I have to pay the state taxes. In the structure of the U.S. Constitution, the states really come first before the federal government. So the, the feds have always said, you know, Income you have that went right to taxes was never really available to be taxed by the federal government. You shouldn't be paying taxes on taxes. And that makes sense right? to, to a degree, right? right? So previously there were no specific limitations. Now there is a cap of what you can deduct, and it's $10,000 um, or $5,000 for married taxpayers filing separately, right? Right. right. So, so as, a, as a practical matter – um, you know, we, we've we've talked about other elements of the federal tax reform, and back when this was an unknown, for a while it was in the breeze that maybe they would eliminate completely the salt deduction, and that states, you know, the residents of a state like Maryland would lose its ability altogether. I mean, the reason Maryland feels particularly aggrieved, we're different than some other states. We're certainly different than the Tennessees and Floridas and Nevadas and Texases of the world who right. have no income tax. Um, Maryland for decades has made a policy decision to be a heavy relier on income taxes more so than any other state. And so that's part of the way we keep property taxes reasonable here. Our sales tax is a relatively low rate and it's applied relatively narrowly. So as a practical matter, we use the income tax more aggressively than most states. That's a really easy tax to document for purposes of a state, you know, a, a federal write-off of your state taxes. Um, so it puts a lot of Marylanders in the spot of this cap is going to hit people in Maryland more so than people in Texas. Right. So four states, Connecticut, Maryland, New Jersey, and New York, filed a lawsuit in federal court to strike down the cap on salt deductions under the new tax law, saying that it is unconstitutional. Michael, do you buy the argument? We can get into sort of, you know, why they say it's unconstitutional. But I do know 
that Congress has included a deduction for a significant portion or all of state and local taxes in every tax statute since the enactment of the first federal income tax in 1861. So what's so different now? Why, yeah. why are they deciding to reverse you know, their precedent from 1861? So it's certainly not a new idea to allow people to write off state and local taxes when they do their federal form. Mm-hmm. That's not a new concept by any stretch. So what's, what's new here in all candor is in the process of reshuffling the federal tax code, the 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 feds basically needed some pay fors that's the, the the term of art is that we want to do some cuts that are going to result in reduced revenue but we don't want to we don't, we don't want the the fiscal effect we don't want the score of this proposal to get too large so like and the cbo the yeah. congressional budget office right. would give a score and if it's out of control then the, the bill might get right. pulled and there were a fair number of of us senators in particular who wanted to vote for a tax reform bill but were reluctant to affect the federal budget deficit too dramatically. So many of them drew a line in the sand at a certain number and said, listen, over 10 years, I don't want it to go over X. Right. And so as a practical matter, it became, you know, ingredients in the soup. Okay, you're going to do you're going to do this with the corporate tax rate, you're going to do this with individual tax rates. How do we find some pay fors? And one of the ways to do that is you eliminate or limit deductions to make the tax base a bit broader here and there. This is one of the places to do that, which so far in that description, nothing Minister about it, but the interesting thing here is that as a practical matter, let's go let's go through that list of states you just mentioned who have filed suits. Right. Who feels deeply aggrieved by this? New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Maryland. What do they have in common? Well, they're not the only states that were colored blue on election night, but all four of them were solidly colored blue. And, and so this <laughs> lawsuit says that this whole tax package was the result of a quote rushed and highly partisan process. So is that what you're getting to here? I, I, th- I think that's part of the argument is that um, this was this was not necessarily a policy decision that was driven by, um, you know, this is good public policy or this is the reason to do this is A, B, and C. Uh, there are some people who felt like, well, this is a way to exact some degree of, um, you know, revenge or whatnot. That we'll go after the states who have opposed this or that, that sort of thing. So it, it's not just those states who are deeply affected, but there are states like California and Illinois who have felt, you know, very much feeling the brunt of this as well. Their taxpayers feeling feeling the sharp pains and mostly blue states, largely in the Northeast, but, but almost exclusively blue states. When you have the federal administration and both branches of conference of Congress as red, um, this feels like there's a tinge there. And I, I mean, the question of not necessarily just what is the new tax policy, but why was it made this way, that's the kind of stuff that the courts have taken some interest in as as lawsuits about federal activity um, seem to become more the norm. Yeah, we're seeing that a lot, and I want to talk about that, but I want to get your thoughts, too, on this argument that this this tax package deliberately seeks to compel states, certain states, to reduce their public spending, and the argument is that that is unconstitutional. We, don't, we talk about blue states, and maybe you know, these states, these four specific states, do spend a lot more money than Tennessee, Alabama, mm-hmm. some of the red states down south. So do you buy the argument that maybe this is a way to say, stop spending so much money, cut it, 
And that's unconstitutional because then you're infringing on the state and local government's right to spend what they feel is appropriate on their citizens, their infrastructure, et cetera. I, I mean, as as this case, presuming that it goes through the federal judiciary in, in, in some process, I mean, it's going to raise interesting questions that are really centered on the 10th Amendment to the Constitution and the notion of how important and how well-defined is the concept of the state's right to basically raise revenue and provide services, to enact a budget, to to make fiscal decisions on behalf of state residents. That's a pretty central matter of autonomy mm-hmm. and running any level of government, the ability to decide what level of service do our citizens need and how do we pay for it. I mean, that's pretty ABC kind of stuff. And I think one of the arguments that Maryland, among other states, is going to raise is that we, when the feds single out certain states and, and give us dramatic headwind in our ability to do that, ultimately you've intruded on states' rights. And it's especially if you've done so in a way that feels like you're singling out states for punishment or retribution, um, maybe that, that you know, potentially you've got two constitutional arguments there. And um, so, so the courts will have to interpret this, this case in terms of the constitutionality in general, and then also did Congress do this knowing that certain states would be affected and this was quote-unquote punishment. We've seen this issue come up a lot with courts recently. Right. We've seen it in gerrymandering, trying to interpret why things were right. done a certain way. Right. Also with the travel ban, right? President Trump on the campaign trail, a lot of people heard him say, you know, I want to do this because I want it to be a religious test. When the travel ban came about, they said this is not a religious test. This is for public safety, which would be constitutional. The court then had to go back and interpret <laughs> like, why this. Let's ban go back was to the effect. tapes, right, and right? So, so that I mean, that's that's I think the parallel here for one of the arguments in this income tax case yeah. is why was this done this way? And if it was done just to make things difficult for states that some of us don't like or that the senators aren't willing to vote for the plan, so we'll throw them overboard, maybe you know, maybe exacting revenge on the taxpayers in those states will turn out to be an equal protection problem, a 14th Amendment problem. Right. Very, very interesting stuff. Ultimately, Michael, what do you think in terms of the, you know, the, the chances of this suit making it all the way through, maybe possibly to the Supreme Court? Or do you think there's much of an argument here or this may just get thrown out? I I have no crystal ball on this. We're breaking new ground here, right? I mean, the idea just, I mean, five years ago, the idea of... I mean, there 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 has been interstate or intergovernmental lawsuits when you know states say we think a federal agency overreached its boundaries. We think the EPA went too far when they did this, and a lot of things get litigated at that level. But I don't I don't think there's a long history of this concept of legislation gets passed by the Congress and the the lower level state governments or state and local governments go run to the courts and basically say, no, this is all unconstitutional. I mean, maybe I'm not, I'm not thinking broadly enough, but it feels like this is a new entry into intergovernmental relations that hasn't been as much of a play in the past. So we're becoming way more litigious. I mean, I, I guess that's, I guess it's becoming, I mean, in a certain way, maybe this is a, a new element of checks and balances. Hmm. I mean, I guess that, that's always been the case that, that the courts could strike something down as unconstitutional. That's not a new concept. But the idea of 
individual states filing suit and state attorneys general becoming big players on broadly broadly written federal policy um, that's just I, I feel like that's a new element so okay maybe that's the new normal now I guess we're going to go ahead and take a quick break when we come back we'll get into the Kerwin Commission all that and more after the break back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Okay, Michael, let's get into the Kerwin Commission. We've talked about this a lot. All right, I'm settling in. All right, get settled <laughs> in, get settled in. Specifically, what we want to talk about here, I think, today the most is teachers and what does it mean to be a teacher today versus maybe 30, 40 years ago. So that, so we start with this question of philosophy, right? I mean, what does it mean to be a teacher? What is that about? And that is emblematic of the Kerwin Commission. And we, you and I have spent time on this podcast and our listeners have heard us talk about how the nature of this commission seems to have expanded beyond the four corners of its origin. That right. if you know, legislation passed saying this body should look at innovation and excellence and nominally let's look at the funding formulas and the, the, the what are we funding and what are we missing and how are we achieving and how can we improve it those sort of things a lot of people like me um maybe thinking small we're figuring this ends up being do we have the right weights in the measurements that we use should we change the way we uh the way we try and fund students with special needs or calculate you know, well right i mean there's there's you know lists of things like that that you and I have talked about as they seem like they're coming, they should be coming eventually. Um, this commission has talked big picture and they've talked more philosophically than practically in lots of ways uh, about things like what does it mean to be a teacher and how can we change what that means? Right. So definitely macro stuff here. And they're looking at top performing countries when they are trying to determine what it means to be a great teacher, what it takes to attract the most high quality individuals that you can coming right out of college and, and actually getting to them when they're younger, perhaps in high school, and recruiting them into the teacher profession. And the argument is that that is important, right? Because if you have you know, the teaching profession, maybe they, it doesn't make as much as engineers or another comparable profession with a comparable level of education. You know, people these days coming out of college, they're going to go where the money is. And so the argument is we need to pay our teachers more money because we're losing out 
um, the best and most talented individuals graduating from college. Yeah. So, I mean, even before you get to the means, this this question is like where in a person's lifetime are we trying to address them? And I think historically, I don't, I don't mean this to be an unfair criticism, but historically we've always thought about, well, sure, there's a competition for teachers and somebody who has a teaching certificate and has some years teaching – you know, she or he has an opportunity to say, okay, I want to teach here, or maybe I'll move there, or I'll live in this place, or I'll live in that place, and I'll teach in those areas that these are portable skills, you can pick up and move to a new area and probably figure out their curriculum and their standards just fine. Mm-hmm. So so by and large, we've thought in terms of what's right next door. I mean, okay, I'm in, I'm in Charles County, I'm worried about Prince George's County, I'm worried about Calvert County, what are those schools paying, and can we keep up with them to, to you know to keep our good teachers around and can we lure some people away from the neighboring county that's that's the small ball and on the way. state level you're thinking <laughs> what are they paying in Pennsylvania West Virginia right, Virginia. yeah northern Virginia and, and you know that sort of thing so that's I mean that's that's theoretically the way we've always thought about competition for teachers in our mind we're thinking about the 44 year old mid-career teacher exactly. who's got options now, the Kerwin Commission has, has basically gone up to the blackboard, erased all of that thinking, and said, dial it all the way back. We want to talk about teenage kids in their formative years deciding what kind of career aspirations do they have. We don't have enough super promising, excellent future students you know, who, who, who are heading into college, who are plotting their course for a career and thinking about teaching as a noble thing to do or a high priority thing that they want to do. They want to be bankers or they want to be astronauts or, you know, things that are more exciting or more lucrative or something along those lines. And if, you know, if the number of, of kids and teenagers and college students that want to be teachers is too low, then you, you can't compete for the best of the best because everybody goes into engineering or everybody goes into law or finance or other things like that because they have their own rewards and other things that make them attractive. Yeah. And I mean, you know, what you're saying is, is true. Traditionally, I think in Maryland, we've considered Towson to be a great school for teaching. Certainly 30, 40 years ago, a generation ago, I think people would, without any hesitation, have called Towson State, uh, they would have called that school a teacher school. That's Maryland's teacher school, right? Right. And so the, the, we've come a long way because 200 graduates out of about 4,000 at Towson enrolled in school with the intent to teach. So 200 out of 4,000 you know, just from 30, 40 years ago when it was a majority, quote unquote, teacher school, that's that's come a long way and it's dropped significantly. And 100 graduates out of more than 7,000 at University of Maryland College Park enrolled with the intent to teach. So obviously there is a disconnect here. And the question is, what do you do to get people, mostly kids, excited about wanting to be a teacher. There's nothing wrong with being an astronaut or a banker, but teaching is also very important. And what do we need to do to attract those kids into this profession? All right. So, I mean, what you end up with is 
a variety of ideas, and the the commission has spent a lot of time talking about professional development and ways to get teachers. You know, the working condition for a public school teacher can be changed in a variety of ways to make it more family friendly, or to make it more enriching academically, or give people more advancement opportunities. There's a variety of things like that. But after you spend a lot of time typing up paragraphs around things like that, and maybe coming up with policies around things like that, then you end up running a tape. This comes down to one thing. Yeah, cash. Money. Right. So, I mean, and the idea, you know, more or less is an entry-level teacher, you know, all things be all things equal, comes in at a salary that's lower than an entry-level engineer. Right. And, and in society, for whatever reason, we reward certain professions more than others. And, the, you know, this is mostly a matter of the private job market, but teachers are a function primarily of the public job market. So we have to make a public decision about where do you place them in that job market. We talked about pre-K a lot here, but I think on the last episode we said a billion with a B. The numbers that they were throwing around, you know, a starting teacher potentially making up to seventy, seventy-five thousand dollars within three years, it's a huge jump from where we are now. Right. And the fiscal impact of this one work group will certainly outweigh that of the pre-K work group. The question is, who's going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? I don't know if the Kerwin Commission, Michael, is going to say, we think this could be a funding source. I think they're just going to say, this is what it's going to cost. General Assembly will give you this now. You figure out how to pay for it. Figure out what you like, what you don't like. Right. So, I mean, you and I at one point recently did a little bit of the back of the napkin math on this. But if if, um, the the state and county governments collectively chip in somewhere like 13 or 14 billion dollars a year on on K through 12 or pre-K through 12 education and about half of that money give or take is is just in salaries not the benefits not the extra things but just in salaries um the majority of them are in instructional salaries okay so where does that leave us dollars wise that means we've got 7 billion or so maybe in instructional salaries 6 or 7 billion dollars if we're talking about you know a 30% increase or thereabouts and that's that's the number that's been that's been wagged around that would reduce the gap right. between comparable professions right so it, it, i mean you're talking about another 2 billion dollars a year or thereabouts i mean so that's that's the ballpark in funding that we're talking about and even 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 if that's we'll get there in six years, mm-hmm. that's three or four hundred million dollars a year. And again, just for this chapter of the story, right. that's not you know, that's before we talk about pre-K. That's before we talk about any other components that might be part of this. When they talk about fairness and they talk about concentration of poverty and the wealth formulas and so forth, I mean, there's more to be more work to be done from other work groups. But this group on its own easily could have a two two and a half billion dollar price tag. Yes, so we should be getting numbers relatively soon. We will keep you updated, obviously, when we get those, and we'll break them down for you. We also want to talk a little bit today about pre-K. I mentioned earlier that the official cost estimate was a billion dollars with a B (laughs) to provide four-year-olds with pre-K and poor three-year-olds with full-day pre-K. At the last meeting, they've sort of said, well, you know, maybe we can rerun these numbers, and if we only account for this percentage of students actually attending, because this will not be compulsory, and then maybe if we have a sliding scale and we're going to expect families to chip in some money, we might be able to get this number down a bit, because there was a lot of sticker shock with that billion with a B 
you know, not just from the commission members, but also from education advocates, from all stakeholders in the audience were kind of shocked by that. So it seems like they want to back that number off a little bit. They understand that that is a substantial cost, mm-hmm. but we will have to see in terms of what they do with maybe a sliding scale. Right. And and nobody there is talking about compulsory education that every four and three-year-old need to be enrolled in pre-K. They want to make it available to everybody, have the capacity to handle anybody who comes. But the idea that they're maybe a family contribution as some component of whatever this cost is, is on the table. And that itself would probably be become a limiting factor for who takes advantage of this. Yeah. And I certainly think the sliding scale is going to be one of the recommendations out of this work group. Again, these work groups then have to report back to the full commission. They will consider what the work groups came up with. And then eventually they're going to have to vote on all of this stuff. So if you end up with close to a billion for pre-K and a number like two or two and a half billion for the teacher, you know, revisioning teachers, Mm -hmm. two more work groups yet to announce that – that they might be revenue neutral, they might you know they might be dollar neutral, or they might have some added cost components. We're probably going to see some recommendations for some additional support staff. We still are talking about what are we doing next with security. Um, I mean, you you layer all these things together, it, it's really easy to see a fiscal note for this collective set of recommendations be well over half a billion per year. Easily. I mean, it easily could say this is going to cost us six, seven, eight hundred million dollars per year for some multi-year, like extended, you know, even six, eight, ten year phase-in period. Um, so that that's enough to, to, to put to work everybody's thinking about, okay, how do you pay for w- whatever pieces of this we, we decide are essential? How do you pay for this? The money we're talking about here is big and it's real. But Michael, when it gets to the General Assembly, they're going to have to make some tough decisions, right? Because let's be honest, the money, the state doesn't have the money, the counties don't have the money to do all of the things the Kerwin Commission wants to do. So when you're in the General Assembly, you're in a tough spot. But at the same time, you have to be pragmatic and you can't you, you can, but you shouldn't put this burden on the state and the counties with no way to pay for it. Yeah. So so maybe that's a set aside for a future episode of the podcast. You know, what could what what could the state of Maryland do to scratch together additional revenue for whatever its next wave of commitments look like? That could be a useful thing just for us to talk about down the road. Certainly can be, and I am assuming that it will be now. I like the idea a lot. So, Michael, any final thoughts on the Kerwin Commission before we wrap this up? I just think, yeah, I mean, this we're going to start seeing this come together. We might see numbers from the teacher group as soon as next week. And in the next three or four weeks, I think we're going to start to see first draft fiscal estimates. And as we've been predicting all along, this is going to change this debate. Um, you know, writing paragraphs and talking about philosophical issues is valuable and it's important, but it just doesn't have the same concrete effect as you know sideways sheets of paper that show columns of numbers and how much this costs. And once we get to that, especially when we get to things that have a redistributive effect, um, this is going to get you know this is going to get complicated. The you know the, the the frogs are in the pot and the water's getting warmer and nobody's really complaining right now, but we'll be hopping pretty soon on this. If you're interested, by the way, in learning more at our upcoming summer conference, August 15th through the 18th, we will have Dr. Kerwin himself, as well as County Commissioner from Allegheny County, Bill Valentine, Montgomery County Council Member Craig Rice, Mako's two representatives on the Kerwin Commission, speaking on a panel. It will be moderated by another Kerwin Commission member, Delegate Maggie McIntosh, Chair of Appropriations, 
uh, delegate from Baltimore City. The whole gang will be at Summer Conference. They're going to talk all of this through, and they're going to interact with the audience. I think yeah. that'll be really great. And the, the timing's going to be perfect because the, the pieces are just starting to come together. And I think there's murmurs around among the, you know, the, the, the people who are pacing and watching this process saying, is it possible for this to all happen by the end of the year? I wouldn't be surprised if part of their message is, yes, we're going to be done one way or another. This thing is done in December. They've already and, had an extension. Yeah, They'd like to get it done. Right. So I, I think, I think, um, we're we're fortunately right in the right time slot to get a group of people together, stand up in front of a big audience, and kind of talk through. Here's the pieces that we're starting to look at, and we expect to you know to bring this ship in. So I think it'll yeah that, that, that'll be a a, a must see event at the conference. So that is Saturday morning on Friday afternoon. Michael, you and I are going to be very fortunate. We're going to record a live episode of the podcast, and we have a special guest. Right. Uh, we have all sorts of folks who are former MAKO presidents and and leaders within the association who come down for the conference and participate. We've got county leaders from days gone by who have gone on into the legislature and so forth. Uh, but having Congressman Dutch Rupersberger, who was president of MAKO uh, back when he was county executive in Baltimore County, um, he was a real big MAKO guy. He was a real Real big believer and and a, a very articulate and effective voice on behalf of county governments did an awful lot of lobbying and work in you know in, in Annapolis on behalf of Mako and county governments in general as well as his jurisdiction. Uh, he's he'll be a great conversation and he's going to join us as a special guest for an episode of the podcast. That will be great. It will be great. So that's Friday from two fifteen to three fifteen. That'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. Until next time, Michael and Kevin signing off. Have a great day.